The opinions expressed on questions you didn't ask are those of the individual participants and do not reflect those of their respective employers and institutions. Many of us have recently been enamored with Black British culture, history, and music by way of shows like Bridgerton, Small Acts, and other celebrities like Idris Elba, John Boyega, and Letitia Wright. Even with the increase in the number and type of stories depicting Black British people, there is very little that we know of their history. Did you know that the earliest modern human inhabitants of Britain had skin pigmentation usually associated with sub-Saharan African people? Yes, they were Black. I didn't know that Blacks also arrived as soldiers in the Roman armies as early as the second and third centuries AD. We rarely talk or hear about the experiences of the Windrush generation who rebuilt most of Europe and England after World War II. And yet, according to the UK Parliament House of Commons Library 2021 census data on ethnic groups, across England and Wales, 82% of people identify with a white ethnic group, 9% with an Asian ethnic group, only 4% with a black ethnic group, 3% with mixed or multiple ethnic groups, and 2% with other ethnic groups. With this much ancient history and the current presence of Black people in the UK, I wanted to ask questions of two illustrious Black scholars about the lived experience of Black people in the UK during their Black History Month this October. In honor of Global Diversity Awareness Month, we are going to be revealing how our African-American struggle for social justice and health equity intersects with their experiences as African-descended people in the United Kingdom. For example, the likeliness of COVID-19-related deaths in Black males and females of the UK was respectively recorded at 4.2 times and 4.3 times higher than males and females of white ethnicity. Sound familiar? Well, let's get into it with our guests. We're going to be talking with Dr. Gifford Ramey and Dr. Marianne Barreau. Today's discussion is going to be titled, I Called Out, But They Didn't Hear Me. It is a discussion about diversity and inclusion in healthcare in the UK. I invited these illustrious guests because they provide a very unique perspective on the lived experiences of Black people in the UK and their experiences in the healthcare system. I'm sure that they also have some reflections on other minority groups in the UK. But this is going to be a rich discussion because, again, it's a conversation in a population that we don't usually hear about, especially on this side of the pond, a.k.a. the United States. So I'm glad to welcome Dr. Gifford Ramey, who is an award-winning university lecturer with over 20 years of experience. He is currently a visiting professor at Anglia Ruskin University and Canterbury Christ Church University, between which he supervises four PhD students in corporate leadership, social justice studies, 
race studies, and African socio-migration studies. Dr. Ramey was born and bred in London, landing his first job at Central Middlesex Hospital over six summers as a hospital theater operative while pursuing his first degree in biochemistry. Though he didn't complete his studies back then, the experience was his first dosage of seeing African-descended people being mistreated by the National Health Service. This was quickly followed by working as a social worker manager in London with the elderly services before turning to his lifelong interdisciplinary passion of theology and social justice, which culminated in a PhD in diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. The latter is a creative piece of historical research into how whiteness refracts our cultural reading of ancient texts. Presently, Dr. Ramey is the founder and lead executive consultant of Rockstone Consultancy, which he leverages his academic expertise to provide sector-specific institutions with tools to drive value in integrating their everyday workspaces. His consultancy is committed to the transformative practice of dismantling structural inequalities in organizations and opening up innovative spaces for a culture of genuine belonging. Currently, he is working with a number of NHS trusts and private health entities to help push this just and egalitarian agenda. Thank you, Dr. Ramey. Thank you. We also have with us the illustrious Dr. Marianne Farrow. Marianne works as the Joint Medical Director for the Kent, Surrey, and Sussex Academic Health Science Network and is an Associate Non-Executive Director for the Kent and Medway NHS Partnership Trust. She has international experience working across both the Australian and UK health system with specialist qualifications in health system leadership, management, and public health. She has held board level roles as a medical leader in both primary and secondary care and is passionate about improving the patient experience and delivering better integrated care. She is a fellow of the Royal Australian College of Medical Administrators, Australasian College of Health Service Management, and faculty of clinical informatics, as well as being a certified health executive and leadership coach. She has a special interest in researching health equity and the impact of the social determinants of health. Her current doctoral studies will explore health inequalities within the Kent and Medway region. She is leading a number of initiatives to promote diversity and inclusion in healthcare and is a trustee and chair of the Royal College of Physicians, Edinburgh Equality, Diversity and Inclusivity Committee and chair of the Royal Australian College of Medical Administrators, Diversity and Inclusion Committee. Marianne is committed to using her position to role model an inclusive leadership approach whereby she supports, mentors, and coaches clinicians from disadvantaged backgrounds to widen participation in medicine and increase diversity within healthcare leadership and management. Thank you so much, Dr. Marianne Perot. Thank you for having me. This is such an honor to have such illustrious guests join us today to talk about such important topics 
related to diversity, equity, inclusion, and healthcare and research. I'm so excited to extend this conversation to the African diaspora that is in the UK and in Europe. And I'm glad that Marianne is even able to share with us some insights from her experience in Australia. This is an enormously powerful conversation and panel. Thank you so much again for being here. So as we get started, I would like to start off with a question of just telling us about how you and your family are connected to Africa, the transatlantic slave trade, if at all, and the UK. Like, Give us some context to your connection to the African diaspora personally. Dr. Gifford. Okay. Uh, when we think about our history, especially uh, if it's connected to the transatlantic slave trade, via the Caribbean as, as is mine. I think of it as a truncated history, meaning yes. that it began in Africa and uh, my ancestors were enslaved and taken to the Caribbean and we mixed with other ethnicities along the way. And then we came to Britain. Um, my parents are part of the Windrush generation. And that's a phrase that's technically attributed to Caribbeans that came to England as part of the British Empire then between 1948 and 1960 or so. And they were invited by the British government to come and help rebuild Britain. And I am, I am a child of that generation. So it's a difficult, it's not the easiest of questions to answer. I mean, I did a DNA test <laughs> <laughs> and um, I discovered that I was, or I am rather, 56% Nigerian or thereabout and another 10% um, West African and then a bit of East Africa, East African, uh, um, some Baltics, there's a percentage of Baltics in my blood, apparently, or genes, and and Sardinia and Greece. I think it's 12% or something like wow, that. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, very interesting. And there's Jewish there too. And and I remember telling my siblings, you know, guess what? You know, I think we're, we're Nigerians. And they said, well, why do you say that? And I said, well, I told them the results. And then they said to me, well, we always thought there was something different about you. <laughs> <laughs> about you in particular. <laughs> Meaning of all the African nations, why Nigeria? Lord, why Nigeria? But um, so I, I like to think of myself as an international person because of that. But ha and, and therefore a child of the world with natural preference and, and, and privilege in in my African ancestry. Wonderful, wonderful. It's just wonderful to learn more about where people are coming from and how they came to be where they are. So thank you for sharing that rich lineage with us. Marianne, would you like to share? Yeah, of course. Unfortunately, I don't have such a, an exotic array of countries as Gifford. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, that that's amazing. I think that's you know that's an incredible um, story there. Mine. Um, so my father's Nigerian and my mother is um, white English. Um, mm -hmm. And interestingly, you couldn't have had 
two families that did not move more than my my two families so <laughs> my my english side i think my mother has traced our family to within the same sort of 20 mile radius back to the 1500s wow um, and then my father's family are actually from the south of nigeria uh, a place called benin city and mm. a part of the extended royal family so yeah. it you know really interesting no one really left until my parents got together um <laughs> <laughs> and and they met in bristol um so um i've i've really you know i think families can be complicated can't they so yes. my my journey has been complicated by various different family dynamics and um i think it's really only in the last i'd say 10 years that I've really tried to find out more about my Nigerian culture. Mm -hmm. um, my father passed away some time ago, mm. um, but it hadn't hadn't really interested me. And I think it's having children. Yes. Um, so I've, I've got um, three children, three boys. It's a madhouse. Um, <laughs> and I have a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old 12, 12 and a 4-year-old. Wow. And it's it's probably since having them that I've started to realise why culture is important. Mm. And they've asked me questions about particularly my Nigerian family. And there's just an enormously rich history within yes. Benin City. And, and of course, it had a relationship with the slave trade. It was on the coast. They were known to have sold their enemies, you know, those mm. that they had captured through various different tribal wars, but they have such a rich history in relation to art. I don't know if you've heard about the yes. Benin bronzes and there's, you know, a huge, you know, a huge number of people trying to get those artifacts back to mm. the country. So, mm. you know, and, you know, that's really, uh, you know, a fascinating history that sits behind a lot of their artworks that were very much, you know, treasured by, those you know who in, came to Nigeria so this the actual white slave traders um, mm -hmm. really valued their artworks and mm -hmm. took them <laughs> as they did to so many other uh, yeah. countries so I guess it's it's all a journey isn't it and and it's one yes. that I'm continually exploring and uh, and trying to find out more and more history that sits behind it Amen. That sounds wonderful. You know, just to be transparent, you know, I'm African-American and for generations, that's what I know of my family on both sides, having been mainly from Southeast United States, um, specifically, I grew up in North Carolina, but my family is all over the country, mainly on the East Coast and Midwest. And unlike you all, I don't have that ancestral connection and history, but I'm thankful for the technology that's available for people to be able to trace those connections back to our motherland, back to Africa um, and other parts of the world, right? Um, there's diversity within all of us, right? Yeah. And so I think that that's also a really important conversation to have. I do know that my mother um, traced some of our lineage back. And I used to joke with people sometimes um, and tell them, oh, well, I'm part Irish. And they would look at me funny. <laughs> and I would laugh because, you know, it's 
we're all mixed and diverse and we regardless of what we look like on the surface mm. there our stories are deeper and what mm. that also means is that we're connected and so i want to start the conversation with sharing you know those types of connections because we're coming from different parts of the world to talk about similar experiences, right? Mm -hmm. So when we think about mm -hmm. the similar experiences of our people, a lot of people don't know much about Black history in Europe. A lot of people don't know much about Black history in the UK. Mm -hmm. And so as you have grown up and developed yourselves, your careers, your family, what are some of your favorite moments in Black history in the UK that inspire you to this day? Mm. I, for me, as I've grown older, uh, the Windrush generation that I've just mentioned mm -hmm. are the heroes of my of my lifetime and of my black of my UK black history, and and it's largely because I've only it's only in my older years I've grown to appreciate what they had to go through, mm. what they sacrificed, especially in an effort to have their children ha have better opportunities. And many of them sacrificed their dreams uh, and, and, and lived their dreams, so to speak, through us. And when I think that they are the ones that rebuilt post-war Britain, literally, the mm -hmm. we're talking about transportation, we're talking about the health service. Mm -hmm. The health service would not be what it is today without people from the Caribbean and, and other parts of the com now Commonwealth through mm. construction, through social care, through education and so on. And they did it without a mumbling word. This is the incredible thing about that generation. Mm. My dad died a couple of years ago and mm. uh, in all his 85 years, he did not share with me one racist moment that he had to undergo. And I know he went through many every day, especially mm -hmm. back then. You know, that generation just, you know, kept their head down, heads down and got on with it. And so for me, they are the heroes. There's a, another hero, William Cuffey. I don't know if you've heard of William Cuffey. He was a disabled black man who was actually mm. born in Medway in Kent, um, Marianne, <laughs> um, in 1988. And uh, he... Um, I didn't learn about him at school in London, mm. as is the case uh, for black history. For black history generally, black history ha is an erased history as far as Britain is concerned. Mm. And, but he uh, was a tremendous leader. He actually led the Chartist movement in the 1840s. Now, the Chartist movement was the largest non-parliamentary movement in Britain, in fact, in British history. You, if, you, if you can imagine, for example, he led a campaign for free speech, for fear and access to, the, to different kinds of jobs, but definitely paid jobs, to the, the right for voting, mm. uh, the, or the right for living where you want to live, and so on and so forth. He was the one that he led a two million petition mm. um, to to Parliament. And back in those days, that was incredible. This was a black. Yes, man. he actually led. He actually was part of a of an uprising in Manchester. This Manchester is the cotton 
production capital then of the world. And he led wow. it up then because of the injustices and inequities that were going on there. So he has become my hero. In fact, next week I'm at a Black History conference, I'm going to be telling his story in greater detail. But the other thing you, I, before, I, before I hand over to Marianne, that you need to bear in mind, Naisha, is yes. that there is a phenomenon, phenomenon that we refer to as the Black Atlantic, meaning mm. that we see those across the ponds, i.e. yourselves, as our cousins. And much of what you have gone through, we, we have vicariously gone through it, if not uh, physically gone through it ourselves. Mm -hmm. So many of the, the luminaries of the civil rights movement, you know, thinking of um, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Muhammad Ali, Paul Robeson, and so on, they were our heroes too. Wonderful. Yes. Uh, they were featured on TV. I can still remember when Muhammad Ali in the 70s was interviewed by Michael Parkinson mm. and how brazenly proud he was of his blackness. And this was this was uh, rather a novelty for us here in Britain to see that. And, and that helped to give us voices as well. So... Yeah, so I I, I, I I want to refer to that whole phenomenon of the Black Atlantic that have showered for us a wider group of heroes, Black heroes. Awesome. So, yeah, I, I think that's fascinating. Your gift, Gifford, is really around history. I learn so much from you every time I, <laughs> I hear you. I think for me, in terms of Black history, it's really given us within medicine a time mm. to really reflect on that history so mm -hmm. as, I, as I mentioned before I'm, I'm a trustee of the Royal College of Physicians um, in Edinburgh it's a very old institution dates back from 1681 and I think the the London faculty is 1500s as well mm. so wow. you know really old institutions and of course there is there are links to the slave trade and our colonial past and I think that, you know, it's only really in the last couple of years that time and effort have been put in to really explore what that relationship was and mm -hmm. to start to right some of those wrongs that have happened. So when we look within medicine, we know that there are many different ways in which black people were exploited, that were, you know, tested on without their consent. Mm. We know that there are untruths within the literature mm. whereby mm. Um, black people have been dehumanised and they have continued to roll on through our medical education system. Mm. And I think that really Black History Month for us within the Royal College is really a time for us to reflect on acknowledging the past Yes. and mm -hmm. thinking about how we need to change for the future. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the ways is, is through our library. So we know that, you know, our library is one of the oldest in the world, a medical library. Uh, it's, it's listed as, as a heritage site, mm -hmm. um, but there's, the, you know, very few books in there um, that have been written by black people. Um, mm. There is there are no portraits, so the entire 
college is covered with portraiture, portraiture and there are no black people. And in sure. fact, there's yeah. only one woman. So starting to make that right and to recognize those in the past that actually have contributed, the unsung heroes mm -hmm. um, that we need to acknowledge. And I, and I guess for the NHS, one of the really famous ones is, is Mary Seckle. And she was in the time of around, I think it was 1800s, and yep. she was a nurse during the Crimean War, and at the same time as Florence Nightingale. Well, mm. we all know who Florence Nightingale is, but no one had really heard of Mary Seckle. So I think oh, that wow. through sharing, you know, some of the unsung heroes who were also there, who were also participating, serving the community, and doing such a, an amazing job in really difficult times need to be recognized um, mm -hmm. and respected. I appreciate you all sharing such rich history and reflecting on our connections, reflecting on, you know, this, this, you know, we, we're in a time right now where it's really kind of popular, right, to now put people of color and period films. Um, it's it's become really edgy to now start to uncover and listen to and hear about the voices and contributions. And what I love about what you all are saying, the leadership, right? The trailblazers, right? We weren't just there passively just doing what we were told or we weren't just there as enslaved people. We were there as leaders we were there as contributors. We were there as innovators and we shaped culture and society. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we don't often hear about it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And to you all's point, it is up to us to uplift those names, say those ancestors names and honor them and bring them to the forefront. So thank you again for sharing such rich history. And I'm sure this is going to come up again in our conversation. And so one of the things that I think that's really interesting, at least in the short time that I've spent in Europe, was that there's a lot of diversity in Europe, but it's very like white diversity, right? Caucasian, Eurocentric diversity, because you're in the heart of the homeland of, you know, the white community, white race and things of that sort. And so I remember even being a tourist you know, and people would hear my accent and know that I was American. And they were kind of shocked that a Black American was visiting London and Amsterdam and all these places and whatnot. But that's even becoming more of a publicly consumed good that you're seeing more travel groups of Black people traveling all around the world and mm -hmm. proudly showing it and making sure that people feel comfortable making those travels. But as we're thinking about, you know, how we're all connected, what are some of the other non-white communities in the UK that help to make it even more diverse? Hmm. Well, you know, um, the UK, according to the last stats I saw, I think, um, is about 81.7 or something like that, a white. So we're talking about England, Wales here. And of that group, there are about 74% that I self-identify as white British. Mm -hmm. So that means about 14 to 15% are made up of non-white groups, if you like. Mm 
which is not as high a figure as the non-white group in America, I suspect. Although sometimes in different corners of uh, the social media, you might be given to think that, you know, 50% or 60% of the nation is full of non-white people. Uh, the early migrations of the 1940s, 50s, these are mass migrations because there have always been black people in Britain. So let me mm. just make that abundantly clear. The oldest fossil, human fossil, is of a black person in Britain, male yes. and female. All right. Mm -hmm. um, so let's be abundantly clear about that. And there are many, um, there's a lot of research that demonstrate that the early Celts in Scotland and Ireland were themselves black or African. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they've always been black. So in the in the in the um, in the 1600s, when Queen Elizabeth I was reigning, she it's on record that she complained that there were too many uh, black people in London. Mm. <laughs> right. So they've always been black people in Britain. So when we talk about migration, we're talking about the recent migrations mm -hmm. and. The, the recent migra early migration tended to take people to the large cities such mm -hmm. as London, Manchester, Birmingham, Bristol, Liverpool. And, and so you find a high preponderance of non-white people in these places. So, for example, in Britain, in London, sorry, you have a, over 46% of the residents living in, in, in London self-identify as Asian, Black, or other ethnic groups. In uh, Leicester, there are over 50%, I think it's near 60% of that population is non-white, and they're mm -hmm. many, at the, the majority of whom are um, South Asians. So mm -hmm. but what we're finding in the later migrations, so the make migrations since the 1990s, the early 2000s, of say southern africans coming over and asians coming over they are moving to the rural areas so we're finding that more and more non-white people living in villages not as many but um, we're finding that phenomenon increasing as time goes by and within these areas you find some integration so you mm -hmm. don't have as rather differently to to the states where say in chicago or new york you have because of redlining you know housing, mm -hmm. huge swathes of areas just full of black people and no you don't get that in britain you will so when we say brixton for example where there yes. is a preponderance of black people there's a lot of white people there too <laughs> you know what i mean and okay. there are there are intermixed, so to speak. So we mm -hmm. don't find areas where it's just monoculturally one group. Although having said that, you can, if you didn't know the nuances of different ethnicities between uh, Indians and Pakistanis, for example, you mm -hmm. could be forgiven for thinking that saying Leicester you know, it's one monocultural group, but it's not. They are Hindus, they are Sikhs, they are Muslim, mm -hmm. um, all living together. I could say a lot more, but I think you get in the picture. Uh, yes. Get, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Help, yeah. I think, mm -hmm. Go ahead, Marianne. Yeah, no, I think it's, 
the, the mix is amazing. I think that where it becomes challenging within health is when there are dramatic changes mm. within populations. So, for example, London, as Gifford said, London's always been multicultural many, many mm -hmm. years. Yes, it's increasing. So it's I think they're predicting in in 2030, it will be majority black and other ethnic minority groups will be in the majority in London. But places like in Kent, where I am, mainly rural, but seeing some really quite significant shifts in the ethnicities that are coming through. And some of that is, I don't know if you've been watching the news, but there's been a lot of migrants coming across mm -hmm. um, on boats, as, as the government would say, illegally. I would say they're just desperate and mm -hmm. looking for for somewhere better, you know, to live. And, and I, you know, we're treating them in a, in a really appalling way. But the impact of because they're coming onto the Kent coast and or, or also the Sussex coast, which is mm -hmm. also my patch, what we're seeing are these dramatic shifts in what the population looks like. Uh, so, for example, there's one town in Kent called Medway, you know one of the largest towns in Kent, they've seen a 5% increase in the last two years um, mm. to the black and ethnic minority groups. And of course, the people that we're talking about, they're not well established. They're not, they don't mm -hmm. have any possessions or how they don't, you know, many of them can't work because they're still in the process of claiming for asylum. So, mm -hmm. but they're coming with a, you know, significant number of health problems. Mm -hmm. um, which might include mental health. It might be women who need uh, antenatal care or postnatal mm -hmm. care, having children, young children, and, you know, obviously lots of other medical conditions that, um, so FGM, so those women who are coming from the Saharan area of Africa, mm -hmm. uh, they've heard of female genital mutilation. So these mm -hmm. are things that are not generally seen within mm -hmm. the Kent health system that now we have to train our clinicians mm. to understand and manage, you know, that yes, they will have some management for mental health conditions, but not, you know, trauma informed care, not dealing with significant mm. post-traumatic stress, etc. you know, people mm. coming from war-torn countries. So, you know, it's really hard to meet their needs when you see these rapid shifts in the dynamics within the population and I think that you know as we're talking about health equity today that's probably one mm -hmm. of the challenging things because governments are slow to move and so mm. the right help there and you know yes. it's not just healthcare I'm talking about education I'm talking yeah. about housing you know everything that mm. relates to the social determinants and trying to shift the money get things in place, get the workforce in place, you know, is is incredibly difficult. And I think those are some of the challenges that you might not see, or you might see in America, I don't know, but those are some <laughs> of the significant challenges that we have in the UK. Yes, I mean, I, I can definitely uh, confirm that as we experience, yes, large influxes of new racially and culturally um, diverse populations, that it does tax uh, us in terms of our systems of healthcare and our other, you know, societal systems. It creates a lot of tension. 
you know, in terms of um, interpersonal relationships. And it does also in politics, right? But it also does test our, the individuals as well as the systems themselves who are aiming to care for all these new populations. So I think that is something that we have in common. And especially because, you know, our borders are such that people are coming from all different directions. And, Mm -hmm. and like you, you, like you mentioned, I think what's challenging is that we often do term them as just being illegal. I really appreciate the fact that, you know, you frame them in terms of these are people who are number one people, just like me and you. (laughs) And so with that comes the natural impediment of survival, right? You are leaving one place that you are familiar with in order to have something better or to be safe or to just be able to survive, you know? And so it's not that, that anybody is trying to put anybody else out. It's just that wherever they came from was not sufficient for their survival or, and, or they know that there are better opportunities somewhere, you know? Yeah. But, but in, then- our, in our situation where it's not, see, we take a very presentist view, uh, view of the phenomenon of what's going on now for his, by that i mean we're looking at it as though this is just a new phenomenon that's come out of nowhere mm. but the migrations are historically linked meaning right. that they are part of a long history of colonialism mm-hmm. of, of unlawful interventions in country mm-hmm. And uh, a number of these uh, migrants come from places where they spoke English. Where did they learn to speak English? How on earth were they able to speak English? Well, it's because of our subjugation of of these people. Mm -hmm. And so uh, many of the migrants are coming over. And they are not, as Marianne said, they are not illegal, according to the Geneva Conventions. which is a humanity a humanitarian convention these people have the right to flee land that where they are either being persecuted or where there where there is war uh, and life is a, a very difficult they have the right to seek asylum elsewhere and that's why they're coming and they t- they're coming to britain because there is a historical relationship that we have with them and often that significant point is taken out of the equation this mm-hmm. is why w- what Mary Ann said is happening in in Medway Kent in South uh, England is not surprising it's not mm-hmm. surprising because the government is not making any kind of intervention by way of preparing the population for their coming uh they they are and they're not doing that with regards to people that they are inviting so there are medical practitioners who are given permission and being brought over in their thousands to britain to make up for the vacancies that are Mm -hmm. here and they're not preparing them to um neither are they preparing our population neither these individuals these professionals Mm -hmm of what they should expect or might expect over here. Yeah. So, and it's because of this deliberate 
false creation of a of some culture war that they want to rile up in a uh, country that has a history of white supremacy. So these are the holes that we're trying to pick out and fill as we have these discussions. Yeah. I think what's what's really sad is that this really vulnerable group of people, and as you said, Niasha, they're people, they're human beings, have become a political football. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to kick them because they have no voice, they have no power, and they're an easy target. I think what disappoints me the most is that I feel sometimes that some of the, obviously there's the rhetoric from the media, but Mm -hmm. the influence that that has on those who have been here, and I say black and ethnic minority families who are Mm multi-generational and still have views of they shouldn't be coming to this country, Mm -hmm. forgetting the root of how they came to this country. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what makes me sad is the lack of compassion and empathy that I see mm-hmm. for this particular group of people where I think, you know, this is the space where black and ethnic minority people should be showing how we should welcome these people. We shouldn't mm-hmm. be joining in with the vilification. We shouldn't mm-hmm. be kicking them, you know, as the politicians are. And by the way, those mm-hmm. politicians are not white. They are no. also from you know, ethnic uh, minority communities. Mm. And I think that there's a part to play when we talk about role modeling. There's a, you know, there are vulnerable groups here right now who need our support. And mm-hmm. I'm not seeing that we're kind of reaching out as a community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's more, much more that we should be doing in this space um, and not jumping on that kind of that the language that is used within mm-hmm. the media, you know, because it's for it's for nefarious reasons, aren't they? That they're, that they're yeah. using that language. Mm-hmm. They do not have our best interests at heart. So we, you know, we shouldn't be playing into that media campaign. Um, right. We should be coming together as communities to say what can we do to help. Yeah. Right. And can I so, just say, just, just. The, the government in the past has done something. It's not like we're asking the government to do something that they've never done before. So mm. you take, for example, between 1948 and 1957, there are about, about 150 to, to 200,000 Polish people and a smattering of German. These mm. were, you know, former, the Germans were former enemies because of the World War, right? Right. They came over but it was pre- predominantly um, Polish people. They came over between that time. The British government leafletted uh, the homes of people in these large cities that the Polish people were being migrated to. They leafletted mm-hmm. their, uh, these English and British homes to tell them what to expect, how to treat them, how to be hospitable, and so on and so forth. There was a huge campaign to receive these Polish people. In mm-hmm. the, during the same period, 17, that's one seven thousand, 17,000 people from the Caribbean came. And we were plastered all over the newspapers as invading this country. Wow. Taking over as, you know, our histories are non-aligned. You know, mm. who are these 
where you know who are these people who are going to pollute our countries these were in the new, these were headlines in the newspaper there wasn't even a whisper or hardly a whisper in the newspapers for the polish people coming over so there right. is definitely a an agenda a government agenda mm -hmm. To, oh, it's like Ukraine, isn't it, Gifford? Yes, I mean, like the Ukraine, Ukraine refugees that we've right. just had, we rolled the red carpet out. Yeah, right. We really did. I mean, everyone put their hands up to take a Ukrainian refugee family. Mm -hmm. But did we see that with Afghanistan, people from Afghanistan? No. Did mm -hmm. we see, you know, we could just list all the countries that we've gone to war with. Yeah. Uh, and we, you know, we did not have the same response. So, you know, I think it's a really important question that we're asking, mm -hmm. which is, you know, how do we treat those who are white mm -hmm. and refugees? And how do we treat those who are black and brown and refugees in this right. country? And I think that, you know, we've demonstrated, you know, what we're what we're like, unfortunately. And it's and it's not good. And it's not just the UK. I mean, this conversation could have just as easily happened in the US as it's happening in the UK. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have this discussion was to bridge this divide and kind of demystify some of the myths that we hear about what it's like to live and exist in other places and the experiences of, of Black people, people of color in other spaces. Thank you for listening to the new series of Questions You Didn't Ask. Join me, your host, Naisha Frey, and my guests, Dr. Marianne Farrow and Dr. Gifford Rainey, next week as our conversation on global diversity and inclusion in healthcare continues. <laughs>